The Law School of America. Concerns about videotaping. Camera perspective bias. Psychological research suggests that evaluations of videotaped confessions can be affected by the camera perspective used at the initial recording. Extensive empirical data has been collected in this area by manipulating the position of the camera to a suspect focus, looking at the front of the suspect from waist up and the back of the detective's head and shoulders, detective focus, looking at the front of the detective and the back of the suspect, and equal focus, where the profiles of both the detective and the suspect were equally visible, perspective. The research indicates that the camera perspective influences assessments of voluntariness, the level of coercion on the part of the detective, and even the dichotomy of guilt. Changes in camera perspective lead to changes in the visual content available to the observer. Using eye tracking as a measure and monitor of visual attention, researchers deduce that visual attention mediates the camera perspective bias. That is, the correlation between camera perspective and the resulting bias is caused by the viewer's visual attention, which is decided by the focus of the camera. In the United States and in many other countries, interrogations are typically recorded with the camera position behind the interrogator and focused directly on the suspect. These suspect focus videotapes lead to the perception that the subject is participating voluntarily, when compared to both audio tapes and transcripts, which are assumed to be bias free. In other words, the manner in which videotaping is implemented holds the potential for bias. This bias can be avoided by using an equal focus perspective. This finding has been replicated numerous times, reflecting the growing uses of videotaped confessions in trial proceedings. Racial salience bias. Psychological research has explored camera perspective bias with African American and Chinese American suspects. African Americans are victims to strong stereotypes linking them with criminal behavior but these stereotypes are not prevalent towards Chinese Americans, making the two ethnicities ideal for comparison. Participants were randomly assigned to view mock police interrogations developed using a male Caucasian detective questioning a Caucasian, Chinese American, or African American male suspect regarding his whereabouts at a given time and date. All interrogations were taped in an equal focus perspective. Voluntary judgments varied as a function of the race of the suspect. More participants viewing the Chinese-American suspect and the African-American suspect versions of the interrogation judged the suspect's statements to be voluntary than did those viewing the Caucasian suspect version. Both the African-American suspect and the Chinese-American suspect were judged to have a higher likelihood of guilt than the Caucasian suspect. Racial salience bias in videotaped interrogations is a genuine phenomenon that has been proven through empirical data. Policy Recommendations Research indicates that an equal focus perspective produces relatively unbiased assessments of videotaped interrogations. A variation of the equal focus perspective is the dual camera approach where the subjects and the interviewer's faces are presented side by side. One study into this approach suggests it eliminates the usual camera perspective bias on voluntariness and guilt judgments, but was no better than the infamous suspect focus condition in terms of its impact on the ability to accurately distinguish between true and false confession. To aid criminal justice practitioners and legal policy makers to achieve sound and fair policy, a study in behavioral sciences and the law presented the following recommendations based on the body of research. Custodial interrogations recorded in their entirety with the camera position so that the resultant videotape displays an equal focus or detective focus perspective. If an interrogation has already been videotaped from a suspect focus perspective, it should not be used. Rather, the use of an audio track or a transcript derived from the videotape should serve in its place. The dual-camera approach is not advised because it does nothing to moderate actual accuracy of judgments. 
Cases by Country. United States. Peter Riley, 1973. In 1973, 18-year-old Peter Riley of Litchfield County, Connecticut, was convicted of murdering his mother. He had signed a detailed confession after first discovering and informing of the crime, and then being detained and interrogated for many hours with little sleep. During this interrogation, with no lawyer present, he agreed to undergo a polygraph, which he was wrongly told he had failed, and was persuaded that only he could have committed the crime. He was sentenced to 6 to 16 years for manslaughter but freed on appeal in 1976. Pizza Hut Murder, 1988. In 1988, Nancy the priest was raped and murdered at the Pizza Hut where she worked in Austin, Texas. A co-worker, Chris Ochoa, pleaded guilty to the murder. His friend, Richard Danziger, was convicted of the rape. Ochoa confessed to the murder, as well as implicating Danziger in the rape. The only forensic evidence linking Danziger to the crime scene was a single pubic hair found in the restaurant, which was said to be consistent with his pubic hair type. Although semen evidence had been collected, a DNA analysis of only one gene was performed at the time, even though Ochoa had this gene, it was known also to be present in 10 to 16 percent of individuals. Both men received life sentences with no possibility of parole. Years later a man named Ahim Marino began writing letters from prison claiming he was the actual murderer in the Pizza Hut case. The DNA from the crime scene was tested, and it matched that of Marino. The DNA of Ochoa and Danziger was excluded from matching that evidence. In 2001 Ochoa and Danziger were exonerated and released from prison after 12 years of incarceration. While in prison, Danziger had been severely beaten by other inmates and suffered permanent brain damage. Jeffrey Mark Deskovic 1990. Jeffrey Mark Deskovic was convicted in 1990, at the age of 16, of raping, beating, and strangling a high school classmate. He had confessed to the crime after hours of interrogation by police without being given an opportunity to seek legal counsel. Court testimony noted that the DNA evidence in the case did not point to him. He was incarcerated for 15 years. Juan Rivera, 1992. Juan Rivera, from Waukegan, Illinois was wrongfully convicted of the 1992 rape and murder of 11-year-old Holly Staker. Although his DNA was excluded from that tested in the rape kit, and the report from the electronic ankle monitor he was wearing at the time, while awaiting trial for a nonviolent burglary, established that he was not in the vicinity of the murder, he confessed to the crimes. Rivera had been interrogated for several days by police using the Reed technique. His conviction was overturned in 2011, and the appellate court took the unusual step of barring prosecutors from retrying him. Rivera filed a lawsuit against a number of parties, including Johnny Reed and Associates, who developed the Reed technique. Reed contended that Rivera's false confession was the result of the Reed technique being used incorrectly. Rivera was taken to Reed headquarters in Chicago twice during his interrogation for polygraph tests. These were inconclusive, but a Reed employee, Michael Masakas, told Rivera that he failed. The case was settled out of court with Johnny Reed and Associates paying $2 million. Gary Gager, 1993. Gary Gager was sentenced to death for the murders of his parents, Morris, 74, and Ruth, 70, at their McHenry County, Illinois farm in April 1993. He was interrogated for more than 21 hours. He gave the police a hypothetical statement, which they took as a confession. His conviction was overturned in 1996, and Gager was freed. He was pardoned by the Illinois governor in 2002. Two motorcycle gang members were later convicted of Morris and Ruth Gager's murders. West Memphis 3, 1993. 
Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. The West Memphis Three, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, were convicted for the 1993 murders of three eight-year-old boys. At the time of the alleged crime, they were 16, 17, and 18 years old. One month after the murders, police interrogated Miss Kelly, who has an IQ of 72, for five hours. He confessed to the murders and implicated both Eccles and Baldwin. Mrs. Kelly immediately recanted and said he was coerced to confess. Although his confession contained massive internal inconsistencies and differed significantly from the facts of the physical evidence revealed, the prosecution continued. Mrs. Kelly and Baldwin were convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Eccles was convicted and sentenced to death. For the next 17 years, the three men maintained their innocence. In August 2011, testing of DNA evidence was found to be inconclusive, it included DNA from an unknown contributor. Prosecutors offered the three men a deal if they pleaded guilty, to release them for time served. They accepted the offered plea but said that they would continue to work to clear their names and find the real murderers. They were released after 18 years in prison. Norfolk 4, 1997. Don Yao Williams, Joseph J. Dick Jr., Derek Tice, and Eric C. Wilson are four of five men convicted in the 1997 rape and murder of Michelle Moore Bosco in Norfolk, Virginia. The convictions of the four were based largely on their confessions, which they have since maintained were coerced after hours of interrogation, during which the men were played off against each other over time. The Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project considers this a miscarriage of justice. Moore Bosco's parents continued to believe that all those convicted were participants in the crime. Williams and Dick pleaded guilty to murder as they had been threatened by the potential of being sentenced to death at a jury trial. They were sentenced to one or more life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. Tice was convicted of rape and murder and sentenced to death. Wilson was convicted of rape and sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. Three other men, Jeffrey A. Ferris, John Edonce and Richard D. Polly Jr., were also initially indicted with the crime through accusations by others, but their charges were later dropped before trial as Tice would not testify against them. The supporters of the Norfolk Four have offered evidence that purports to prove that the four men are innocent, with no known involvement or connections to the incident. No physical evidence supported their cases. Tice's conviction was overturned, and Williams and Dick received governmental pardons, clearing their names. The four received a settlement from the city of Norfolk and stayed in 2018. The fifth man, Omar Ballard, was indicted in 2005 after his DNA was found to match that at the crime scene. He had informally confessed in 1997 but withdrew his statement after being pressured to implicate the four other men. He pleaded guilty to the crime in 2009 in order to avoid the death penalty. A serial rapist and murderer, he was apprehended and sentenced to prison after he pleaded guilty to other crimes of violence against women and confessed to acting alone. Also convicted in the crime. He was sentenced to 100 years in prison, 59 of which were suspended. He is the only man whose DNA matched that found at the scene. He confessed to committing the crime by himself and said none of the other men indicted and tried were involved. Forensic evidence is consistent with his story that there were no other participants. Michael Crow, 1998. Michael Crow confessed to the murder of his younger sister Stephanie Crow in 1998. Michael, 14 at the time, was targeted by the police when he seemed distant and preoccupied after Stephanie's body was discovered, and the rest of the family grieved. After two days of intense questioning, Michael admitted to killing Stephanie. His confession was vague and lacked detail, he said he could not remember committing the crime but believed he must have done so based on what the police were telling him. 
The confession was videotaped by police and showed Michael making statements to the effect of, I'm only saying this because it's what you want to hear. His admission has been cited as a classic example of a coerced false confession during police interrogation. Joshua Treadway, a friend of Michael's, was questioned and gave a detailed confession after many hours of interrogation. Aaron Hauser, a mutual friend of the boys, was questioned and did not confess but presented a hypothetical and incriminating account of the crime under prompting by police interrogators using the Reed technique. All three boys subsequently recanted their statements, claiming coercion. Crow's confession and Hauser's statements to police were later thrown out as coerced by a judge, part of Treadway's confession was also ruled inadmissible. Later all charges were dropped against each of the three boys. Prosecutors later charged an unrelated party with the crime. His defense team argued that the three boys who were first charged had been responsible. The charges against the three boys were dismissed without prejudice, which would allow charges to be reinstated at a later date, after DNA testing linked a neighborhood transient. Richard Toot, to Stephanie's blood. Embarrassed by the reversal, the Escondido police and the San Diego County District Attorney let the case languish without charges for two years. In 2001 the District Attorney and San Diego County Sheriff's Department asked that the case be taken over by the California Department of Justice. Toot was convicted of the murder in 2004, but the conviction was overturned. At the second trial in 2013, the jury found him not guilty. The murder of Stephanie Crow remains unsolved. In 2012, Superior Court Judge Kenneth So made the rare ruling that Michael Crow, Treadway, and Hauser were factually innocent of the charges, permanently dismissing the city of Escondido case against them. A TV movie was made about the case called The Interrogation of Michael Crow, 2002. Corthy and Bell, 2000. In 2000, Corthy and Bell, who has a diagnosis of mental retardation, was accused of murdering his mother, Netta Bell after he had found her body and called police in Cook County, Illinois. Police questioned him for more than 50 hours. He said he eventually confessed to the murder of his mother because police hit him so hard, he was knocked off his chair, and because he thought that if he confessed, the interrogations would stop. He believed that he would be able to explain himself to a judge and be set free. His confession was videotaped, but his interrogation was not. At the time Cook County prosecutors were required to videotape murder confessions, but not the preceding interrogations. With his confession on tape, Bell was tried, convicted, and sentenced to jail. When the DNA at the crime scene was finally tested a year later, it matched that of a serial rapist named Deshaun Boyd. He was already in prison after having been convicted of three other violent sexual assaults, all in the same neighborhood as the Netta Bell murder. Bell filed a civil lawsuit, which was settled by the city in 2006 for $1 million. Kevin Fox, 2004 Kevin Fox was interrogated for 14 hours by Will County, Illinois, police before he confessed to the 2004 murder of his three-year-old daughter, Riley. He was convicted and sentenced to jail. His confession was later ruled to have been coerced. Because of DNA testing, police later identified Scott Ebby as the killer. He was a neighbor living a few miles from the Fox family at the time of Riley's murder. Police identified him as the killer while he was serving a 14-year sentence for sex crimes. After questioning and confrontation with the DNA results, Ebby confessed and later pleaded guilty. Kevin Fox was released after serving eight months in jail. The Fox family eventually won an $8 million civil judgment against the county government. Laverne Pavlinak, 1990. Laverne Pavlinak confessed that she and her boyfriend murdered a woman in Oregon in 1990. They were convicted and sentenced to prison. Five years later, 
Keith Hunter Jesperson confessed to a series of murders, including that of the woman. Pavlinak had become obsessed with details of the crime during interrogation by police. She later said she confessed to get out of the abusive relationship with the boyfriend. Her boyfriend purportedly confessed in order to avoid the death penalty. United Kingdom. Robert Hubert, 1666. In 1666, Robert Hubert confessed to starting the Great Fire of London by throwing a firebomb through a bakery window. It was proven during his trial that he had not been in the country until two days after the start of the fire, he was never at any point near the bakery in question, the bakery did not have windows, and he was crippled and unable to throw a bomb. But, as a foreigner, a Frenchman, and a Catholic, Hubert was a perfect scapegoat. Ever maintaining his guilt, Hubert was brought to trial, found guilty, and duly executed by hanging. Timothy Evans, 1947. Timothy Evans was accused of murdering his wife and daughter. He was subsequently tried for the murder of the daughter, was convicted, and hanged. When informed about their deaths and asked if he was responsible, Evans reportedly replied yes. He was later posthumously pardoned in 1966. Stephen Downing, 1974. Stephen Downing was convicted and spent 27 years in prison. The main piece of evidence used against him was a confession he signed. He had agreed to this after an eight-hour interrogation which left him confused, and his poor literacy skills meant he did not fully understand what he was signing. Stefan Kishko, 1976. Stefan Kishko was convicted of murder in 1976, in what was later described as one of Britain's most notorious miscarriages of justice. One of the main pieces of prosecution evidence was a confession Kishko made after three days of police questioning. After almost 16 years in prison, Kishko was exonerated in 1992. When asked why he had confessed to a crime he did not commit, Kishko replied, I started to tell these lies and they seemed to please them and the pressure was off as far as I was concerned. I thought if I admitted what I did to the police they would check out what I had said, find it untrue and would then let me go. The Law School of America the content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America